Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and what a pleasure it is to be joined today by Maggie Nelson, who is the author of several books of poetry and prose, most recently the New York Times bestseller and National Book Critics Circle Award winner, The Argonauts. Her latest work of criticism is called On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. Maggie, it's such a pleasure to see you. Thank you, I'm thrilled to do this. <clears throat> Since our, my days as being an editorial assistant on the Red Parts, which you published, what, 15 years ago? 2007, so <laughs> 14 years ago, I know, right? Maggie, it's so interesting to me that one of the things you stress in On Freedom is how the work of freedom takes time and it's an ongoing process. And even writing this book has taken you a great deal of time. Because when I, when I read the book, the first thing I thought of and the thing that was top of mind was this real now more than ever feeling. Mm -hmm. um, when I think about anti-vaxxers who take on the rhetoric of the pro-choice movement, like mm -hmm. my body, my choice. Mm -hmm. Maggie, why do you think the concept of freedom was co-opted by the right? Or, or why do you think it's um, such a good talking point for the right? Well, my book is not uh, American history, you know, like there are a lot, but although there are some good references, I mean, I, you know, when I started off with this topic, the first thing I read was Beyond Arendt and some other things was um, Eric Foner's um, History of American Freedom. So, I mean, there are a lot of references in the book to give, I mean, all of which is to say, this is not new, this is not a pandemic thing. <laughs> this not, I mean, yeah. the, the, the right, as I make some mention to in the introduction, um, you know, I think as the term, I mean, that, that the term has always had an abolitionist history in, in the United States, and then it's had a right-wing history. Um, and certainly after the term was so often used, as I make mention of the introduction in the 60s and became associated with the freedom riders and you know, um, freedom schools and you know, freedom everything, um, I think that there was a kind of doubling down that took place in, 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 a, in a rhetorical war um, after that moment, after the moment, um, the kind of post-liberatory moment of the 60s. So I think that there was a lot of work done on that regard. I think that the question of freedom and who some people's freedom comes at the encumbrance of others, you know, is obviously that's the core of slavery and it's the core of much of the country. So again, it's not new. I think that I, I'm actually a little bit surprised in that when I was writing the book, um, as I make mention of also in the introduction, freedom wasn't really, it wasn't really Trump's word, you know, it, yeah, it, yeah. it wasn't really a lot of interest to him and, and all the word clouds and stuff of Trump speak, it didn't really show up. And people noted that a lot because it was a big word for, you know, neocons like uh, W and stuff like that. So I think it was actually interesting. The pandemic uh, gave him, it was like a, a golden road to reviving the freedom discourse, you know, a light shined upon it and, 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 and people took it. Um, but also, you know, tensions around my body, my choice, as you just mentioned by relating them to the, you know, pro-choice movement. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sympathetic to, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm pro-vaccine, but I'm also, I, I, under, I understand that there's a motley history about government and, and, and body and intrusion. So I don't, and, and that also has a long history as well, you know. Yeah. And, and you talk about um, constraint as a necessary force in, 
in talking about freedom and and also you need constraint in your writing. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about how you chose the four areas you wanted to focus on and um, what are some of the topics that might have gotten away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's constraint and then there's restraint, you know, and usually constraint is imagined as a external force in some way, whether it be noxious, like a autocratic government, or whether it just be like nature's, like natural capacities, you know, like temperature at which the body overheats and the planet becomes unlivable or for humans or things like that. So different kinds of constraints. And, but you're right that the book <clears throat> intentionally brings up, because the book has a lot to do with art and how to make form how to make pieces of art, which is a question of how to make form out of formlessness, or at least how to dance with formlessness and form, um, you know, is a big topic in which constraint is not usually a boogeyman. It's usually a, um, a desired uh, engagement. Right. So this book, as you've mentioned, is no different. And, you know, it was very, um, the, the, the introduction was the book for a long time and it was probably about five times its length and I think I had to think through as per the question you just asked me about the history and politics I had to think through all of that before sure. before I actually let it that all that go for more or less and then I kind of had to choose enough of a skeleton of those issues to um write an introduction that gestured to all those places while also saying and now we will look at this term not in any of those not in its political history um, so in that regard, I think the, 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 there, there, there was only one other chapter that I had sketched out and that was on surveillance and, and, mm -hmm. and digital media. Um, because when I started writing the book or researching it back, uh, in like, I don't know, 2013, 14, uh, that was a much more live issue. It's not that I don't think that issue will recur and dominate a lot of our lives in terms of like, we kind of let go of the issue and let social media harvest everything yes. they wanted from us. I think we will see in the next, you know, 50 years, what, what you know, 50 to 100 years or more, what that will look like. Um, and you can see that in, in other countries, what that will look like. But I think because it was so far, I don't, I don't do social media and I'm not like a media studies person. And I felt like as I began to research the climate, which was kind of the biggest chunk of research in the book that was outside of a zone I'd done a lot of work in, I just realized it would take forever to also be able to speak competently about media studies and, and surveillance and privacy issues. So I, um, I kind of let it go. And I think for me, I subsumed that under the idea that's in the introduction about, you know, what it feels like to do things that you know are furthering certain systems of control and constraint, like uploading all of your privacy data, while also having feelings of freedom um, that are not necessarily illusory, just, you know, that you could say that they are, like you're just a tool, but I wanted to take more seriously that we don't, you know, the Joseph Boys quote, like there's no tool without blood on it, like that 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 we can't wait around. Um, I mean, you could, you, you people can make their own choices, but it would be kind of foolhardy to discount all forms of liberation if they seem to be tainted, you know? Right, right. And that's such a big theme in the book too, that there's there's no perfect form of finding freedom, seeking it out. 
especially if you're conceptualizing it as having no constraints, um, because I think, especially if you think more ecologically or just more physiologically, that's just not a, a viable conception of the, of the universe. Yeah. Understand it, you know. Yeah. Um, Maggie, I, I want to ask you a process question because yeah. the work cited section in your book is so extensive and expansive and I've added so much to my reading list and I sort of like to imagine what your workspace looks like. <laughs> Tell me about how you read and you're finding connections in all sorts of different kinds of texts and how do you keep track of, of all of those connections? Well, a lot of it, I trust my mind, um, which is, you know, varying degrees of success. Um, but mostly I read with the pencil and uh, I read a lot of things that seem useful. I sometimes teach the things I'm thinking about. And so I've had cause to kind of talk about them or think about them. And then I, and then I guess I, 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 I like writing other people's words into my computer because it um, mm -hmm. makes me understand what they're saying or what I don't understand about what they're saying. So often I'll go back and I'll type in all the quotes in a text that were of interest to me. And I, for this book, I put them all into first one big document. And then when I knew what the chapters were, we'd kind of, you know, differentiate by document. And then I would, you know, print them out a lot and then look at, as you say, like, the connections between them because often there might be something about something written say about sexual freedom or something but that seemed uh, very apropos and thinking about climate or thinking about art and so I wanted to have all those things out but you know like you say it can be a little unwieldy and it kind of requires re depending a lot on memory and associative logic and yeah yeah no I fascinating um and it makes sense that you you putting them all in a document seems seems like the way to go um and and i feel like one of the things that i notice uh throughout your book throughout your books is when you're referring to all of these different thinkers um you often mention how you might not entirely agree with a certain point of view and yet you see much validity to it or you have a personal response to it and you're very careful to mention such things. Mm -hmm. Tell me about why. Well, you know, I think you just did so yourself in an interesting fashion with the example about the my body, my choice stuff. It's like, it doesn't, um, I, you know, it, there, there are strains of, there are strains in most everything, not, not everything, but there are strains in a lot of things that I think I can, I can understand, you know, um, and I tend to think of people, like, I think of myself, say, as a thinker, like, often I'll be like, oh, the libertarian in me really likes that, but, you know, <laughs> the socialist really doesn't, or, oh, the whatever, you know, like, and I notice that I'm full of a lot of, I mean, I think the left in general has been so confused about, are we all for the state? <laughs> this is state withering away, and we're interested in, you know, anarchist, non-state-oriented practices. It's been such a huge divide that, that bubbles in us all the time yeah. that we don't, like, talk about, because we're like, oh, God, I want, you know, the 
people in camouflage to give me the vaccine at a mass mega site run by the government. And then we're like, oh, but I don't like any of that. You know, it's very confusing. So yeah. I think it, to me, it is much more like intellectually honest to use myself and other people and my reactions to things as a kind of seismograph for various things running through me because I don't think human behavior makes like a lot of sense unless you do that, you know? And I think, especially in like the talking about like in the drug chapter or talking about the art chapter, you know, people ourselves, people we love, all kinds of people uh, ditch obligation when they're feeling overwhelmed or incapable. People ditch the right thing to do, the healthy thing to do all the time for reasons that are not necessarily toxic. They're just because of, I mean, there, there are so many things that run through all of us. And I think that's why like the prison abolition, uh, you know, kind of anti-carceral thinking about like no one is innocent. Every human being has the capacity to cause another harm. You know, those kind of principles are really important to me as I wrote because they um, have to do with, I mean, it's, it's very difficult, like, especially in like the sex chapter, it's very difficult. Um, if we're so accustomed to thinking in like a perpetrator victim logic, and we're so paranoid that if we let it go, we won't be able to call out real harm or have accountability. Like it becomes so difficult to allow ourselves like a more honest reckoning with our own sexual life or desires or the things we've, um, or, or that of our intimates or family. I mean, it, it's very difficult, but I think like, I guess my feeling is like someone's, someone's got to do it, you know, Might yeah. as well me, so I'll give it a try, you know. I, I love that. Um, and, and even um, as you make this point in this section chapter, um, you start us off by listing some of the complaints you've made about some inappropriate behavior because this is part and parcel of understanding that everyone can cause harm or that um, it's still not, it still doesn't feel good. Well, yeah, I mean, I think people are, again, with that kind of paranoia, people are kind of like, oh, you're saying if I don't, if we don't value complaint as a kind of state of mind or even like, you know, call ourselves to it and like valorize it as like, then we won't have the bravery to like make complaint or something. And I've just kind of wanted to say like, I can I make complaint all the time when it's due. Like, I don't see any real, I, I don't really see any, um, nothing that I'm talking about so far as I know of, or I don't think a, a fair reading of that chapter would indicate that I don't think anybody and everybody should speak up about anything and everything that is a problem that, you know, going on. And I, so I think it's more about how do we do that without um, kind of unintentionally reifying a feeling of, um, purity, feelings of negativity, feelings that nothing can ever work out any better because everything always seems so bad. You know, how do we like do both things at the same time, you know? And, and in the sex chapter, you refer to an essay by Chelsea Hodson that mm -hmm. I love and which really complicates things, especially mm -hmm. in the age of Me Too, um, where she talks about being the last one at the party mm -hmm. when she's had a lot to drink and, mm -hmm wanting to be that last person at the party. She says she's waiting for something to happen, you know, mm. and which is something that, um, I don't know, I certainly I spent a lot of time waiting for something to happen. I, I think it's like, it doesn't mean that what you want to have happen is assault, you know, but I think like 
so it's kind of this question between like, um, they're often bad choices on offer <laughs> in patriarchy and misogyny, and yet we still want something to happen. So, you know, and our behavior sometimes reflects that. So what do we, what do we do, you know? Then you talk about not all, not all of our desires fit in a nice box mm -hmm. or a non-problematic um, way of thinking. And, and, and so what do we do with, with those kinds of feelings? Yeah, I mean, I really love that Catherine Angel quote that I have in the book where she says, sex can be a means of moving toward difficulty and pain. That just seems so true to me. I don't think it's like the only thing that's true, but the idea that it's just moving towards positivity and pleasure reflects nothing that I know about my own sexual mm -hmm. history, nor most everybody I know. And I think, I think that's really interesting. You know, I just think it's really interesting and, and, and really helpful um, not to accept you know, unjust events or circumstances, but just as a psych as psychological insight, you know, um, maybe even as a road to forgiveness of like, if I sought difficulty and pain and I found it, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe something didn't actually go wrong, you know, maybe, right. maybe I meant to go towards something that was difficult and painful and I, and I did, you know. I, I, and, and I find it so, the following section is about drug use and freedom. And, and you look at it through the lens of literature about drug, drug use um, with female protagonists for the most part. Mm -hmm. And in there again is that desire for danger perhaps. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what drew you to the books with female protagonists. You mean in the, in the drug chapters? In the drug chapter. Well, you know, I have this long list of about 30 names at the start of that chapter, which are like the kind of big names in drug writing that you get yes. bandied mm -hmm. about, you know, at least when I was coming up, I think it's kind of a probably outdated list, but you know, miraculously, there's a whole new raft of, you know, male <laughs> names one could put on it instead, you know, but I think that, you know, the the, the tropes that recur, especially in, you know, white male drug writing, the tropes that recur um, are not, uh, they they make for, I mean, as with all things, when, when women or non-men are kind of trying to identify, they make for some kind of strange and interesting cross-identifications that sometimes work well and other times are, are really bumpy and have a lot of aporias. And, and I always noticed that, you know, in writing. And I think, you know, when I was coming up and Eileen Miles, who was my friend and, you know, teacher for a while in these informal writing workshops and was the kind of the first sober alcoholic I knew who wrote a lot about, about drinking. And I just found, you know, so much liberation and interest in reading about and in, in, in reading their stories, you know, Chelsea Girls in particular. Yeah other stories and I and I thought this is a sound I haven't heard this is information I don't have it relates to my life I want to know more about what this sounds like it's um as you just mentioned like it's tough and bold about going towards danger it it's it takes ownership of the alcoholism it doesn't um it's it's comfortable and in, in the subject position of the user um it it, it tosses certain gender stereotypes, you know, by the wayside. And I just, I just kind of maybe from then and maybe before, but, you know, just started, uh, you know, I was just interested in that sound and how it sounded different in different books. And so, and didn't really realize till I was writing this book, cause I kind of wanted to write 
I, there were times I thought maybe I should write like a separate little book about drugs, maybe about women and drugs. I wasn't sure. <laughs> but I really did keep coming back to this um, drugs and freedom thing. And I, and, um, and it felt important for it to be there, to stay in, you know. Sure. Um, and, and one of the things I loved most is you, you talk a lot about one of my favorite books, hmm. uh, After Claude. Oh, great. And I, I don't think I realized that Iris Owens was um, quite the character, such a character. Uh -huh. um, but, but I also really appreciated your take on the final scene mm. in After Claude, because for me, that mm. was always a really um, frustrating Mm -hmm. um ending and i i it, it was a downer yeah. and it, it reconceiving that mm. sitting in the chelsea hotel as a form of freedom is, mm -hmm. is so helpful <laughs> tell me about that i'm so glad that you know that book i mean it was funny in that chapter i was like this is such an odd chapter because it's gonna focus on a, on several books or people from Maria Savina to Iris Owens to um, you know Ellen Miller that like a lot of people probably haven't heard of. I mean, maybe case in point, you know, like that their books maybe aren't classics the same way that certain drug books get to be classics. But I'm glad, so I'm glad you read it and glad that you knew her. Um, I think that I was really interested in, um, I mean, I was born in 73 and I grew up, I went to high school in the Haight-Ashbury and the kind of like, so it was the eighties and it was, you know, it was like the real detritus of the what the sixties had left behind, you know? And yet I got a lot of the like, smile sister, where's the sunshine, you know, from like old hippies and stuff. But it was definitely <laughs> clear that we were like in the ashes, you know? So I, I've always been really interested in kind of, especially feminist kind of spoofs of the, of the era. Well, at the same time, I've always been really interested. I mean, this came across in something else I wrote about Carolee Schneeman, the artist who, who actually were like, yeah, you know what? We did get liberated. Like it was great. Like, you know, it was messed up, but it was also great. It wasn't all just a spoof, you know, it wasn't all just like we were, you know, taking the, you know, the foot in the face under the guise of, you know, liberation. Like there, there was real stuff going on. And, you know, I've always thought that like looking at videos of young girls dancing and you know high you know at Woodstock I've always just been like what is you know I've just been fascinated by it so I think the after Claude was it's the grim end you know it's the grim end of all that and but I think like you say I didn't necessarily feel like her final moments in the Chelsea Hotel after she's been kind of I don't know how you would describe it just kind of proffered herself up slash taken advantage of by this gross hippie who like has her have this perform this sexual liberation that he eventually gets on film and it seems unclear if it's going to be like used against her in some way and she's just kind of lying there being like oh this you know sucks here I am alone and I'm counting my cigarettes and you know really grim um, but I think it's pretty clear that that character is not going to find certain forms of like healing or liberation, you know? Right. Um, 
So I kind of a try in that case and in other cases in that chapter to write about how there's this really interesting like frisson between the writer and what we feel like she knows and is doing and how liberating that feels in the text, you know, because satire is enormously liberating. I mean, it's enormously like, well, like it just, it makes feel things feel like they're exploding and blowing up. It feels so good. You know, there's a difference between that feeling and then like the fate of you know our poor protagonist in the bed and in, in the Chelsea Hotel and so and, and that's true of both Ellen Miller's book like being killed that I spent some time with and in this yes, book so, yes you know. I am just hearing the descriptions of it were were enough to make me wonder if I should <laughs> read it or not yeah, exactly <laughs> um we skipped over the the first section entirely right. which is um about freedom in in art yeah um, and so let me go back for a moment and because of time constraints, yeah. I'm going to talk to you about the lens of the world through which I see so much of art, which is book publishing. Mm -hmm. And you have this one really great, almost throwaway line about Lionel Shriver uh -huh. sporting a sombrero. <laughs> while talking about writing in a Black dialect. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the question of artistic freedom versus what is good introspective art. <laughs> what do you mean? So you mean, tell you about the relationship between good introspective art and like, and, and artistic freedom or something like that? Like, it kind of more like, um, Yes, she is free to use her artistic abilities in whatever way she chooses. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to say that she cannot mm -hmm. um, write in Black dialect if that is what she wants to do. However, right. I mean, I think the chapter, and maybe this is hard, I can imagine it might be hard if you're in book publishing or like in the kind of... Um, like if you were a curator or like anything that's kind of working in the ends of the industry that like have to do with like the direct moment of interface between the work and its audience, you know, and the kind of like, you know, publicity, um, response, criticism, reviewing, like that whole industry. I think that that is all interesting, but I think that the, I think we've spent so much time there that some of this chapter was an attempt to put the marker, kind of move the abacus marker a little bit back into the experience of making art, you know? Um, and maybe because I, I don't like, the word isn't super meaningful to me as it applies to me personally, but I guess because I think of myself as a maker and I'm kind of surrounded by makers and have taught in, taught in art school for a long time. And, mm -hmm. and now, you know, I've taught young writers for a long time. So I'm always kind of trying to stick with the making, and I think you're exactly right. Like, I think, I do think that, you know, Lionel Shriver, like, you know, have at it, you know? Um, and then people will have at their response, you know? And that's perfectly fine and just, you know? Um, and critical response is a consequence of how good or bad the work is, how introspective, how politically acute, you know, how self-aware, I mean, all kinds of things and all that matters, you know. That said, I do think the chapter is obviously a little bit, you know, also tries to draw a little bit of distinction between critical response and then campaigns um, that have to do with, you know, uh, hopefully inflicting damage on someone's career. And I'm not really like, the chapter is not really for or against, it's just kind of trying to say um, 
let's not purport that all critical responses created equal, like there are different activities that we engage in with different goals and that we should ask questions of those goals and, and, our, and our motivations. And if we deem that we want to engage in that campaign, you know, I don't, those campaigns are, are not, I don't, I'm not against them either. You know, it's more just kind of wanting, I see, I've, I've seen a lot of kind of unclarity or maybe sometimes but maybe kind of ungenerously sometimes some obfuscation about about our about our goals and motivations and I think we should be clear you know yeah and um, especially when you talk about how free speech has become you say a disingenuous weaponized rallying cry it's worthy of looking at what do we value mm -hmm. I mean you know I was so I was so moved and interested in this Wendy Brown talk that I quote a lot from in the section that's called Freedom and Fun. And it was a talk she gave some time ago, but it was kind of more at the beginning of the Trump era um, and the kind of beginning of the Milo Yiannopoulos, I'm not saying that right, but like, you know, the kind of the beginning of, a, of what we've now seen really flower, which is this kind of fusion as she describes it of a kind of um, anti-obligation -oblig stance to anything allied with a no the notion of, of, of being free and having fun. And the fun is kind of crucial because it depends upon casting the left as really, as, as really grim and regulatory. And I mean, feminists are not, none of this is new. You know, the, yeah, the, right, right, right. no fun is always a, <laughs> a rallying cry towards anybody, you know, who's trying to, you know, just like not be a doormat or not be, you know, like a subject to racist, you know, innuendo or attack or whatnot. So this is not new, but I do think that as you say, keeping an eye on, you know, I want my artistic life and community to feel fun, you know, um, and there are ways of doing that. And, and there are ways that exist of doing that. I, I do think a lot of people don't find that a lot of things feel fun right now in their community. And I do think that that also, you know, as Fred Moten's question, I quote where he says, you know, why do, you know, I wanna do this thing in this way. And, but the question he and Stefano Harney started asking is like, why doesn't, why doesn't this feel good? You know, and I think if something doesn't feel good, then it is worth pausing and saying, why doesn't this feel good? And how could we make it feel better? You know, um, and that might have a myriad for some people that might mean it would feel better with more regulated speech and for other it might feel better with less regulated speech. Um, so that conversation has to ensue, you know. You talk a lot about false binaries in this, in this book. And tell me about learning to live, say, in the gray areas mm -hmm. um, as, as a means of doing the work of freedom or attaining a sense of freedom. I mean, I feel like I do live there really naturally. And one thing I've noticed with the Argonauts or other books of mine is that I've actually become really curious about what it's like not to because I'm confused by it because I feel like we live in this swirl. <laughs> you know, we're like, we might feel like, you know, you hate your mother, but you know, you love her and you like, you know, and all of that within the same hour or whatever, like we live, we live there. Right. And we, and we try not to believe our moods too much. Um, but yet people might ask me over and over again, say with the Argonauts, like, if identity is so fluid, how can we have a social movement? And I'll be like, I don't, I'm like, I, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, Judith Butler has a really great little riff on this. 
you know, where, and I think it's in the force of nonviolence and maybe it's a different book, but Butler talks about saying like, if your identity is so fragmented, like how did you get to this protest? And, and Butler's like, I took the train, you know, like, it, it, like the, there's a kind of weird idea that like we'll disassemble if we're in the gray, but we're, but we already are, we already are here <laughs> and we're not disassembled and like, and we can still do work. So I think, I think I'm more curious about not so much saying like, hey, quit your binaries, everybody. I'm more like, we don't really, we don't really live there. I mean, like say in the sex chapter, I kind of wanted to get at like, we talk in these binaries, but most of our sexual experience doesn't really live in them even within one sexual experience. Yes. Like it might start off good, then get boring, then get really hot. Like, no, not even within the same thing. And then might feel a little funky for a minute. Like, don't push my head like that, mm-hmm. you know? And then, then it ends and then you're back. I mean, so it's like, we, we already are doing that. So how can I, we actually just call more attention to what we're already doing and what we're already bearing and abiding rather than kind of persuading people that a binary is like a bad habit like that's not really interesting to me because binaries are also useful and they they don't they're not bad in and of themselves you know absolutely they provide clarity as they also they make some things clear and some things less clear you know yes maggie before we go please <laughs> recommend some books for us and also everyone who's listening to this obviously look at the works cited page pages in the back of on freedom all right. Oh, Lord, this is the part where I'm like unprepared. Well, I will say I did. I did really like the Judith Butler book. I just mentioned The Force of Nonviolence. So I recommend that. Um, well, it's kind of odd, but there's um, a book by Christos Yokonomo um, called Good Will Come from the Sea, uh, which is a dystopian collection of short stories. It's t- about Greece. It's totally amazing. I really recommend that. Um, I uh, am really... I think Jacqueline Rose's new book, which is called On Violence and Violence Against Women is super interesting. And I have gotten a lot out of reading that. Um, And I guess that'll do it, maybe. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Maggie. This was a pleasure. Totally. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.